Um, so I was able to um, uh, come to um, Anna's section uh, last week, and I really enjoyed the discussion very much. So I look forward um, to coming to all the sections and just um, you know matching the faces to the names and just hearing uh, your voice and your ideas. So it was a it was a great experience uh, last Thursday, um, and. Um, uh, once again, just can't stress enough how important it is uh, to take advantage of the Writing Center. Um, so today, uh, we're going to go back, uh, and I just want to refresh your memory about some of the things that we've been saying about For Whom the Bell Tolls, um, those kinds of seven-fold permutation that we're looking at, in fact, pretty much all semester. So individual and type voluntary versus involuntary, foreign versus not foreign, literate versus not literate. Um, and on Thursday, we were talking about um, the distant home versus the on-site environment. And it turns out that um, there really are two very distant homes, and maybe just two homes for Robert. One is Paris, uh, which isn't really a real home. But it is a home in the sense that it is something that he can, he has the luxury of taking completely for granted. Um, and um, so that's one definition of home, a place where you can work unselfconsciously. Um, and the other home is a more complicated place um, in the sense that maybe it's not even a geographical locale, but a kind of emotional shelter that is given to him, um, bestowed upon him really by his grandfather's very heroic um, presence in the Civil War. So it's a 19th century home for him. And he needs that very much because of the non-home that is the 20th century. Um, I think that is really a very sad fact about Robert. And maybe it's true of some people. You know, Sometimes it's true of some authors um, that they really should have, that I've loved, that you know, I feel that they really should have existed in a different century. And things would have been so much easier for them. Um, Robert isn't exactly that kind of person, but there is a sense that the 20th century has been very, very hard on him. And it is especially hard on him because of the fact of his father. And really, there's no more central fact than what your parent was. So this is the moment that clears up a lot of things for us why his own home is, in some sense, a non-home for him. Um, so he got this gun back, that he, his pistol. Uh, there was his grandfather's pistol from the Civil War um, that was misused by his own father. And this is what Robert does with that pistol. He climbed out on a rock and leaned over and saw his face in the still water and saw himself holding the gun. And then he dropped it, holding it by the muscle, and saw it go down, making bubbles until it was just as big as a watch charm in that clear water, and then it was out of sight. This is the best that he can do for his father, is to make his father disappear. The extent of the contamination that his father has brought upon the memory of his grandfather can be washed clean only when he becomes um, no more than a bubble, and then not even a bubble anymore in that clear water. Um, it clearly goes back to Hemingway's conception of cleanliness, of how one clears up one's life in, in our time, in 
uh, the big 200 river. Um, but I think that it also, uh, within from the Bell Toes, it also looks forward to a moment, a traumatic moment, uh, when someone else is looking at something like a mirror and seeing his own reflection. And I just want to call your attention to a very uh, deliberate uh, composition of this particular visual tableau. Robert isn't just dropping the gun. He has to go up there. He has to see his own face. He has to see himself holding the gun. And it's that kind of um, almost narcissistic uh, observation of himself that Hemingway is really fascinated by and the psychological meaning of that. So we can read all kinds of meaning um, into this particular scene and we'll see it repeated um, by another person um, in an equally traumatic moment. But here, um, it seems that Robert really has no parent. Um, he looks at the world, and the only thing that he can see is himself. Um, it's almost as if he's really an orphan, has always been an orphan all the time, uh, because his father is really, can really be a father to him. And so the act of dropping the gun um, is in some sense only a redescription of what has long been a psychological fact for Robert. Um, so all of this um, highlights the fact of how important it is to die well, not just for yourself, but also for other people uh, for whom your death would also be consequential. Um, and here the biography of Hemingway really uh, becomes quite important. Hemingway's own father, Dr. Clarence Hemingway, died by his own hand. Um, and we know that Hemingway himself also died by his own hands. So in many ways, for whom the bell toes is a kind of meditation ahead of time to that moment when Hemingway would have to decide what to do with his own life. Um, and so this was uh, front page news in the New York Times, June 3rd, 1961. Front page news, uh, Chicago Tribune. Um, and on July 3rd, 1961, the interpretation of the death of Hemingway was that it was accidental. That it was cleaning his gun, and the gun just get, went off. Um, and this fiction lasted for five years until 1966, when his widow, Mary Hemingway, finally admitted that, no, actually, that he had just put the gun into his own mouth and blew out his own brains. Um, so it took five years for the truth to come out, and now there are all kinds of um, theory. In fact, just last summer, um, I think it was July, there was um, a lot of speculation that Hemingway might have died because he was under such close surveillance by the FBI. Um, so that's just a new theory that would be still be coming up uh, in uh, 2011, um, so many years after the death. Um, people still continue to have conjectures about why it was um, that Hemingway killed himself. But I think that one simple explanation um, is that he was just in very, very poor health and he was not able to write. Um, and I think that for a writer, there probably is nothing more painful than that or something that would make life more meaningless than not being able to write. So this is a picture of him uh, fairly close to the end and this was a public appearance. 
So he wasn't looking too bad, but we can sort of see that he really wasn't looking well. And he was there, it was a fishing competition, and Castro apparently won lots of trophies, um, and Hemingway was there to uh, give him the trophies. Um, but he really wasn't looking well. So I think that that probably is the sim simplest explanation, that he no longer is what he once was, and he simply couldn't accept the fact that there is this kind of uh, sharp decline in, 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 in his mental abilities and physical abilities. Um, so this is the last image um, that I'd like to show you of Hemingway. It's just what he used to write, um, and that is the most important uh, place for him, really, in the whole world. Um, and today uh, we'll talk about um, the thinking about that, about how he ended his life. We'll think about the varieties of dying um, and their numerous ways by which people end or choose not to end the life. So Hemingway actually covers the entire spectrum. People who choose to die as well as people who choose not to die um, and seeing what it means in each case. So we'll begin by looking at um, the central event in For Whom the Bell Toast, the execution of the fascists. Um, and then we'll look at the personal and or non-end of various individuals, beginning with Finito, whose name obviously is a pun, um, and then the old women in the Madrid market, and then bombing, which is a new phenomenon um, in the early 20th century, um, and then Robert's father again, and then Pablo, someone who refuses to die. Um, but first of all, the execution of the fascists. Um, this, we should remember this whole very long episode uh, is narrated by Pilar. So um, I hope that you guys will talk about this in section, what it means for a woman who's on the Republican side to be recounting this story, the execution of her political enemies, um, and how she feels about this, and why it is that Hemingway chooses to have a woman uh, tell this story. So anyway, this is Pilar speaking. Um, and how um, they, the, the guerrillas, uh, Republican guerrillas, have um, taken the town, so they're going to execute all the fascists. And this is all engineered by Pablo. He placed them in two lines, as you would place men for rope-pulling contests, or as they stand in the city to watch the ending of a bicycle road race, with just room for the cyclists to pass between or as men stood to allow the passage of a holy image in a procession. Two meters was left between the lines, and they extended from the door of the ayuntamiento clear across the plaza to the edge of the cliff, <clears throat> so that from the doorway of the ayuntamiento looking across the plaza, one coming out would see two solid lines of people waiting. For Pilar, this formation, this particular visual tableau, and once again, it's highly visual, is emphasizing what one would see coming out of the Ayuntamiento, um, is two solid lines of people, very orderly, um, not inflamed by passion, just doing what needs to be done. And so all the metaphors that Hemingway uses um, are actually rich, ritualistic um, metaphors, um, something that is extremely well-defined with very well-defined rules of the game, like rope-pulling contests, or better yet, 
bicycle race uh, not consider a violent event, either of those, um, or better, still more intensifying the degree of ceremoniousness um, is the procession of the holy image and icon going through. So the three metaphors highlight the fact that there is the equivalent of those um, rituals, uh, civic and religious rituals, um, that would be a political ritual of execution. It is most utopian, the execution of your opponents, uh, which is a necessary thing in some cases, the execution of your political opponents should be as ritualistic, as ceremonious, as free of passion, as all those other ritualistic events. So this is a very utopian moment in whom the bell tolls. And if it could be held at this level, then the Spanish Civil War, according to Pilar, would in fact be a good war or a beautiful war. And she tends to think of those terms as sometimes synonymous, and we'll talk about that. But in any case, um, this is, it begins with a very utopian description of what a war could be and what you could do to your enemies without debasing them, without abusing them, even though you do kill them. Um, and I try to find an image of um, the two lines of people with the people who have been executed passing through, um, and I just couldn't find an image, I guess. It's not surprising, you know, probably nobody would be taking pictures at that moment. Um, but as it turns out, one major artist actually has numerous paintings um, that seem to be alluding uh, to that kind of formation, and it's Robert Motherwell, um, a major 20th century artist. And not only does he have one, he actually has numerous. From the 50s on till the 70s, he produced numerous paintings, all called Elegy to the Spanish Republic, with this two-line formation. So this is an early one that was done in, I think it was 1954. Um, and this one is much later. He numbers all of them. This one is in the Metropolitan Museum. Um, and uh, this one is 102. I don't even remember what date it was, but obviously later. Um, and this one is quite late in the 70s, um, 110 now in the series, and is in the Guggenheim Museum. So uh, w clearly um, Hemingway is talking about something that is also recognized by other people um, as in many ways the kind of the utopian moment uh, of the war when violence is both uh, executed uh, but not allowed to go to get out of hand. But um, Hemingway also shows us that, in fact, that that is not a sustainable utopia, uh, that, that violence kept within limits, violence kept within bounds, um, is not likely to last for the whole duration of the war. So um, Pilar refers to this as drunkenness coming into lines. The people of this town are as kind as they are, as they can be cruel. And they have a natural tendency, they have a natural sense of justice, and a desire to do that which is right. But cruelty had entered into the lines, and also drunkenness, or the beginning of drunkenness, and the lines were not as they were when Don Benito had come out. In Spain, drunkenness, when produced by other elements than wine, it's a thing of great ugliness. So already we're beginning to see the language of beauty and ugliness coming into 
um, a situation where it seems that moral judgment is um, in play. So Pilar is referring to real drunks, people, actual people who are drunk drunks in the in, in that episode. But she's also referring to another kind of drunkenness, um, which is to be drunk with maybe the desire for vengeance, um, drunk with your own sense of momentary power, absolute power over someone, drunk with your ability to bring about absolute debasement um, in your opponent. All of those things can make people inebriated. And so Hemingway is really talking about, and Pilar is talking about different forms of inebriation. Um, and how they can all work to break down the stability, orderliness, and ceremoniousness of what really ought to be no more than a ritual. So, you know, it's the breakdown of ritual that for Pilar marks the beginning of the chaos and the mob violence um, that takes over the scene. And um, so, I just because we're talking so much about, she just talks about ugliness, um, and in many ways, she's inviting us to think about the, both the ethics but also the aesthetics of killing. Um, a book that is uh, pertinent to that kind of thinking is Elaine Scarry's book on beauty and being just and her argument um, is that beauty is actually very important in our consideration of justice. Um, that the sense of proportion, the sense of balance, the sense of symmetry, all those ideas that we associate with beauty should also be concepts that we consider when we think about crime and punishment, whether the punishment is commensurate with the crime. So it's a very interesting argument. Um, and not really just about, you know, not just about execution of, of political prisoners, uh, but thinking about justice in general. Um, so just keep that in mind as we go with Pilar um, to talk more about the breakdown of the line. Then some drunkard yelled, Guillermo from the lines, imitating the high, cracked voice of his wife. And Don Guillermo rushed toward the man blindingly, with tears now running down his cheeks. And the man hit him hard across the face with his flail. And Don Guillermo sat down from the force of the blow and sat there crying, but not from fear, while the drunkards beat him. And when drunkard jumped on top of him, astride his shoulders and beat him with a bottle. Um, I, my reading is not even doing justice to just how horrendous this scene is. Um, and I think that the reason that Hemingway really singles out this moment um, is in fact the incommensurability between the punishment and the crime. We know in fact, and Pilar is very careful to tell us, that Guillermo is not the worst of the fascists. In fact, he is not rich. He doesn't own anything. He owns a wooden implement little shop. Um, he's, um, he is a fascist because of his wife, because his wife is religious. And so he just becomes a fascist to humor her. Um, so he really is, is the last person who ought to be executed under those circumstances. And he's also the last person who ought to be humiliated in this particular way. Um, there's various kinds of execution, but it doesn't have to be this kind of very brutal um, kind of uh, debasement of the person, uh, the, the just very cruel mockery. This is really what Pilar means, that these people are naturally kind, but they are also capable of great cruelty. And this is the moment when we see that cruelty dramatized. So it's, it's, it's not even the killing of Guillermo, it's the making fun of him. Um, and 
um, and just the whole creatist, the, the scenario engineer um, in such a way as to bring about a maximum degradation on the part of Guillermo. This is what makes this scene so unbearable. And so for Pilar, this is the absolute low point um, of, the, of, of the whole, uh, maybe of the whole Spanish Civil War up to that point, although she, doesn't, she can look into the future and she doesn't know what it's to come. Uh, but in any case, um, this is the moment when all of a sudden everything seems to be going the wrong way and it is a turning point for the worse for Pilar. I myself have felt much emotion at the shooting of the Guardia Civil by Pablo Pilar said. It was a thing of great ugliness. But I had thought, if this is how it must be, this is how it must be. And at least there was no cruelty, only the depriving of life, which, as we all have learned in these years, is a thing of ugliness, but also a necessity to do if we are to win and to preserve the Republic. So it's a very complex bit of reasoning here. And it seems that Pilar is actually disagreeing with Scary. So Scary thinks that there's almost a kind of a perfect match between beauty and justice, um, that what we, in our mind's eye, not so much in the physical eye, but in our mind's eye, in our mind, um, what we recognize in our mind's eye as beautiful would also be just, um, that there's that kind of balance and symmetry. But Pilar is making a distinction between something that is ugly and something that is morally reprehensible and something that is politically necessary. So those are the three concepts that are in play in her head. And for her, something that is political, politically necessary, can also be ugly, and that is okay. So she can take ugliness. She doesn't welcome it, she doesn't love it, but she can take it. It is the cruelty that she can take. Um, and so based on that distinction, it is the fact that the cruelty had entered the lines. Um, that cruelty had entered into the lines for her, that is the measure of just how much the Spanish Civil War has been corrupted from within, that basically it has gone bad. And that is a phrase that Hemingway um, uses quite a bit as well in For Whom the Bell Tolls. Pablo is someone who has gone bad. And the Spanish Civil War, the Republican cause, is something um, that has gone bad. So the final reflection uh, from Pilar, but I could not sleep that night. And I got up and sat in the chair and looked out of the window. And I could see the square in the moonlight where the lines had been, and across the square, the trees shining in the moonlight, and the darkness of the shadows, and the benches bright too in the moonlight, and the scattered bottles shining, and beyond the edge of the cliff where they had all been thrown. And there was no sound but the splashing of the water in the fountain. And I sat there, and I thought, we have begun badly. So she's arriving at that word, which for her is the ultimate word of judgment, not ugly, but bad. Um, that this is her verdict on her own side. Um, so Pilar, of course, is not speaking for Hemingway. Uh, 
um, but I think that she has a lot of authority, um, and so um, certainly her opinion is something that um, we should take very seriously. Um, at what point um, does cruelty in any war, you know, not just the Spanish Civil War, but First World War or Second World War, especially is a war marked by great cruelty, um, at what point does cruelty render that side not justifiable? Any action, even the winning side, maybe not justifiable. So uh, from there, um, from this kind of large-scale meditation on the justice of war, whether there could be a just war, or at what point uh, does all wars become unjust? Um, from that large-scale macro uh, meditation, um, let's move on now to thinking about dying um, as a much more personal uh, phenomenon uh, and the, also a choice quite often. Um, Hemingway is very interested in both in people dying involuntarily uh, but also in people um, choosing to live on voluntarily even though living on might not be a very beautiful thing, uh, might not even be actually an ethical thing, although that is a kind of a funny thing to say. Uh, but um, the, he certainly seems to be really thinking about looking forward to his own end in, in all these uh, episodes, but beginning with uh, the bullfighter, uh, Finito. So this is someone who has already, um, his career is over at this point. He's gone to his last corridor, last bullfight. And this is the ceremony. Uh, celebrating the end of his career and his retirement and you know, his glorious career up to this point. Finito did not eat much because he had received a palotexo, a blow from the flat of the horn, when he had gone in to kill in his last corridor of the year, Isarahosa. So the president of the club reached the end of the speech and then with everybody cheering him, he stood on a chair and reached up and untie the cord that bound the purple shroud over the head, and the head of the ball was as though he were alive. His forehead was curly as in life, and his nostrils were open, and his eyes were bright, and he was there looking straight at Finito. Everyone shouted and applauded, and Finito sunk further back in the chair, and then everyone was quiet, and looking at him, and he said, no, no, and looking at the ball, and pulled further back, and then he said, no, very loudly, and a big blob of blood came out of, and he didn't even put up the napkin, and it slid down his chin, and he was still looking at the ball. There's a lot of looking in Hemingway. Uh, we can write a, you guys can write a great paper just by looking at the dynamics of looking, the, the sort of the, the gaze that we cast upon someone else, and sometimes the gaze that they cast back at us, um, quite often it's a kind of a reciprocal process. And here it is indeed a reciprocal process. Finito is looking at the bull, and the bull is looking at him. Um, even though it's a dead bull, it doesn't matter. That bull can look back at you too. And it seems that here, actually, um, it is not what Finito is seeing, it's not a mirror image. And that's what's so heartbreaking about it. It would have been great if it had been a mirror image. Because what he sees in a ball 
is actually a ball in the full vigor of life. This ball, even though he's dead, um, he's more alive than when he was alive, it seems. Um, his, forehead, his curly hair, um, his nostrils are open, his eyes are bright. He's just a great spectacle. Um, and more than that, he's animate. He seems to be endowed with life even after death. And so if this were a mirror image, this ought to have been finito in his prime of life, when he was a great matador, when he wouldn't be coughing blood, when he would be able to eat instead of now, when he can't eat anything because of the damage that's been done to his stomach. So if this were a mirror image, Finito would have been young again, but we all know that that's not going to happen. And so Hemingway is clearly punning on the word Finito. This is a man who is finished. When a man is finished in this particular way, um, is it better or worse for him to be still alive? Wouldn't it have been better if he had been killed earlier, just like the bull? Then he would have been preserved in, at the maximum high, po high point of his life. So I mean, I think it's not the kind of thinking that I actually want to indulge in all the time. Um, but it is um, something that I think that Hemingway actually takes very serious, seriously, obviously. Um, and so for him, this is a kind of a comic, tragic comic moment of survival. Yes, I mean, Infinito is hanging on there. He's not about to dispatch himself voluntarily. He's going to hang on. Um, but it's a very dubious kind of hanging on. Um, and the only redeeming thing that we can say about it is that it's funny, it's comical. So once again, the only way that we can take this, we can swallow this, stomach it, is by saying that this is a comical moment um, in For Whom the Bell Toast. And there's another equally tragic, comic, I would say mostly comic moment um, in From the Battles about someone hanging on, refusing to die, even though they are finished, as Finito is also finished. Um, this is Pilar talking to um, to uh, Robert about some old, about the smell of death, and then he doesn't know what death smells like, and she tells him to go to the market in Madrid. You must go down the hill in Madrid to the Puente de Toledo early in the morning to the Metadera and stand there on the wet paving when there's a fog for the mercenaries and wait for the old women who go before daylight to drink the blood of the bees that are slaughtered. When such an old woman comes out of the matadero holding her shawl around her with her face gray and her eyes hollow and the whiskers of age on her chin and on her cheeks set in the waxen white of her face as the sprouts grow from the seed of the bean, not bristles, but pale sprouts in the depth of her face. Put your arms tight around her, Ingrace, and hold her to you and kiss her on the mouth, and you will know the second part, that odor is made of. Um, I definitely think this is a, uh, there's quite a bit of misogyny going on. I mean, you know, old people, male and female kind of look bad. Um, but Hemingway seems completely fixated on how bad old women look. Um, and especially the bean sprouts growing on her face. Um, it's sort of, you know, and I think that's why it's sort of comic and it's okay because of that. Um, that um, 
that actually lots of very well-known older women have this kind of whiskers um, on the faces, um, and it's you know it's just a fact. And but for Hemingway, it seems to be a kind of a reproach on the old women that they should have this growth on on the faces, um, and that in many ways um, they are going against nature. That suddenly they have become men rather than women to have whiskers on the faces and so on, um, and so they really ought to have died earlier um, instead of allowing this unnatural phenomenon to happen to them. Um, I mean, it's, it, it's, 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 it's really a very small incident, but nonetheless, um, the kind of the female counterpart to the Finito story. Um, and I just wanted to stop here for a moment and talk a little bit about the interconnections uh, between Hemingway and Fitzgerald, because in fact we've seen this phenomenon before. Uh, of a kind of unnatural growth that is almost a parody of nature. So we just have this tragic um, comic bean sprouts on a human face. And um, actually in Fitzgerald, uh, we have a kind of non-comic version of that in The Great Gatsby, in the Valley of the Ashes, with the ashes growing like wheat. And I'll read you the passage in a moment. Uh, but Hemingway also has the kind of non-comic parallel to the Fitzgerald version, uh, which is also a kind of parody of nature that we'll look at. But first, um, something that is almost like the market scene of the Bean Sprouts um, in The Great Gatsby. This is a valley of ashes, a fantastic farm where ashes grow like wheat into ridges and hills and grotesque gardens. Right? So, Fitzgerald is talking about some kind of grotesque vegetation that is made up of the animate and the inanimate. And in many ways, Hemingway is talking about exactly the same thing, the bean sprouts. Um, the women are almost inanimate. They really ought to be inanimate. It's a, uh, it's a caricature of the animate that they are animate. Um, but in any case, it is the sort of weird commingling of the animate and the inanimate that he's talking about, and that Fitzgerald. Um, is also talking about. So uh, just really curious that the organic and inorganic um, are mixed in this way for both authors. Um, for I would say that for, for Fitzgerald, this is, it's very hard to see this as comic at all. I mean, you can try very hard, but this is just not that funny. It's, it's, um, it's ominous. It points to a tragedy. Um, but Hemingway also has um, a completely non-comic uh, parallel to that of something that is almost uh, a parody of nature, except that it doesn't take the form of bean sprouts. Um, it is a human invention that looks like the work of nature, uh, but does something else. So it is about the bombing of the El Sordo band on the top of the hill. They've been uh, chased to the top of the hill, and they're basically kept there by the firing power of the enemy. Um, and they're on the top of the hill, so they're being, just being bombed, uh, the maximum point of efficiency for the bombs. Then through the hammering of the gun, there was the whistle of the air splitting apart. And then in the red-black roar, the earth rode under his knees, and then waved up to hit him in the face, and then dirt and bits of rock were falling all over. And Ignacia was lying on him, and the gun was lying on him. But he was not dead because the whistle came again, 
and the earth rolled under him with the roar. Then it came again, and the earth lurched under his belly, and one side of the hilltop rose into the air and fell slowly over them where they lay. Supposedly, it is bombs dropped by all those bombers that we saw, right? The Heinkos and the Fiats, the German Heinkos and the Italian Fiats dropping the bombs. Um, in, a, in this case, I think it's just the Italian bombers. Um, but the way that this moment of bombing is described three times in this passage is that the earth is rising up and hitting the guerrilla band, who are uh, everyone of, of whom is killed in this bombing. Um, it is the fact that the earth seems to be conspiring with the bombers and hitting the human beings that it has nurtured all this time. That is the ultimate insult, and that's the ultimate injury. Um, that the Spanish peasants, they live on the earth. They think that the earth is on their side. And to have the earth suddenly joining the side of the enemy is about the worst thing that could happen. Um, and so this is the cruelty of the description of that scene, cruelty that is very much coming from Hemingway himself. He didn't have to describe the bombing as the action of the earth, the earth rising up and hitting all these human beings. He doesn't have to describe them in this way. He's describing the incident in this way deliberately to highlight the fact that in which nature has been perverted by human action. That modern technology has perverted nature so that nature is no longer a place where human beings can be nourished. Instead, nature is something, the earth itself is a weapon that can be used against human beings. Um, and what is also cruel about this particular realignment of the earth with the enemy is that it reaches back and retrospectively and retroactively rewrites and ironizes an earlier moment. Because this is not the first time that we hear about the earth rolling or the earth moving. Uh, in fact, one of the most famous little detail from um, the from the Beltos is that when you have good sex, supposedly the earth is, moves under you. Um, and this is what Pilar wants to get, the information that Pilar wants to get from Maria to make sure that, um, that everything is fine, um, that, this in, that this in fact happened. The earth moved, Maria said, not looking at the woman. Truly, it was a thing I cannot tell thee. For you, Ingles, Pilar looked at Robert Jordan. Don't lie. Yes, he said, truly. Good, said Pilar. Good, that's something. So this is back in page... 174, um, the earth moving, it's all on the human side. And for someone who has a very short life, um, everyone seems to know that Robert might actually have a very short life. For someone who is, who's going to have a very short life, having that experience is very important. So on 174, page 174, um, the earth moving has one connotation. And the cruelty of what happens on page 331 is that it completely rewrites that earlier scene and assigns a completely different, in fact, the opposite meaning to the earth moving. So this is what Hemingway's sometimes quite brutal narrative um, can do, is that even something that seems to be safely concluded, um, you know, that earth moving for um, 
Robert and uh, Maria, even though that is safely concluded in the past, it is actually not safe from a subsequent rewriting and a reassignment of meaning. Um, so um, that the, the meaning of the earth moving clearly is in, in flux, maybe. Uh, maybe is, it could be either way, or maybe the later event actually can completely erase the early meaning. I think we have to decide for ourselves to what extent page 321 can undo that earlier uh, utopian moment. Uh, but I want to talk about now, talk go about two other things that are associated with dying and not dying, um, both hinging on the word kobade, Howard. Um, the first actually goes back to Robert's father. Um, and for a long time, I mean, not for a long time, but when we're looking at the scene when he's just dropping the pistol, um, in the in the water, um, there's no description of how he feels about his father. Right? It's just that he wants to get rid of the gun. He never wants to see the gun again. That's it. He's managed to get rid of the gun. Um, but actually, there is um, an upfront description of how Robert feels about his father, and also a clarification of why he needs his grandfather. Uh, hell, I wish grandfather. Ah, uh, hell, I wish grandfather was here, he thought, for about an hour anyway. Maybe he sent me what little I have through the other one that misused the gun. Maybe that is the only communication that we have, but damn it. I'll never forget how sick it made me the first time I knew he was a kobade. Go on, say it in English, coward. It's easier when you have it said, and there's never any point in referring to a son of a bitch by some foreign term. He wasn't any son of a bitch, though. He was just a coward, and that was the worst luck any man could have. Um, it's actually, a f this is interesting for, for multiple reasons. Um, one is that um, Robert really hopes that he's the grandson of his grandfather rather than the son of his father. That's really clear. And because both actually, uh, describe him. He is both his grandfather's grandson and his father's son. Um, if he had the choice, he'd much rather be the former. So he's certainly hoping for the best, which is that his father would just disappear and that one link would be invalid, would be an invalid link. Um, but the way that he thinks about his father um, is, first of all, that this is a moment when Spanish seems to come in handy that maybe it's easier just to ease your way into that way of thinking about your father, so you go by way of a foreign language. But then you really have to say it in your, in your own tongue. Um, but then, the way that he thinks about that word is actually um, to f empty it of any moral judgment. I think that when we use the word coward, we tend to attach a lot of moral significance to that term, right? That lack of bravery. Um, it's a kind of a moral failing on the part of the person um, who, you know, who's lacking in that quality. Um, but finally, Robert is just emptying that of that moral judgment and just saying that some people were just unlucky. Some people were just born not very brave. And it's not up to them if they are born not very brave. It is too much to expect absolute bravery from them. They just, they're not meant to be brave. And when they are tried under circumstances 
when they can't meet that test of bravery, then they're going to break. Um, so this is his way of um, accounting for the fact that his father can live on stubbornly, um, doesn't have the will to live, to keep him going, um, just to make sense of that in his own mind. So in this incident, um, Akawa's decision to die is rendered acceptable. It's not a, still not a great thing, but he can wrap his mind around it. And that's really what he, what he wants to do, is to be able to wrap his mind around the fact of his father's suicide. Um, but I think that Hemingway actually, um, and this really speaks to how far he's able to imagine a position that in the end we know that will be the opposite of his own. How far he's able to imagine um, and give all dignity, uh, or maybe a kind of a admiration, um, to uh, someone's decision not to die, the stubborn desire to hang on and not just to be not just to go right now. Um, and so parallel to that, symmetrical, symmetrical to this, but also antithetical to his father's action, um, is Akobada's will to survive. Um, and the person who embodies that will to survive is Pablo, whom I argue is actually one of the most interesting characters, arguably more interesting than Robert um, in this novel. Um, it, because he's, he's so much goes on inside his head and also through him that we actually don't see represent, represented in the novel. So this is one area where Hemingway even alerts us to the fact that there's some information that we're not getting. And that information, that lack of information, or that non-disclosure of information, actually makes uh, Pablo the very mysterious <laughs> person that he is. Anyway, Pablo is close to being killed at this moment. Augustin hit him again hard in the mouth, and Pablo laughed at him, showing the yellow, bad, broken teeth in the reddened line of his mouth. Leave it alone, Pablo said, and reached with a cup to scoop some wine from the bowl. Nobody here has cojones to kill me, and this hand is silly. Cobada, Augustin said. No, no worse either, Pablo said, and made a swishing noise, rinsing the wine in his mouth. He spat on the floor. I'm, fat, I'm far past worse. Augustin stood there looking down at him and cursed him, speaking slowly, clearly, bitterly, and contemptuously, and cursing as steadily as though he were dumping manure on a field, lifting it with a dung fork out of a wagon. And Dow and Dow, Augustin turned from the door and spoke to him, putting all his contempt into a single two. Yes, me, said Pablo. I will be alive when you are dead. So Augustin is trying his best to get Pablo into a fight so that he could be killed right then and there. And Pablo is doing everything he can to stay alive, and he's succeeding. So no question about it, he's an absolute coward. You know, he's going to be stand there and be consulted maybe for <laughs> as long as, as Augustin has breath to insult him. He's not going to break. 